Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, classical stuff, old things, old books from young strapping dudes. <laughs> We're not old. I, um, yeah. We are three teachers at a school in Austin, Texas, and we like old things and books and classical education. And so we put this put a, pod, put a podcast together. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, and... But you know today, oh, but yeah, let's introduce ourselves. Yeah, My you? name is yeah. Graham Donaldson, and I am joined by Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hello, or T Fletch. I almost said that's me no to that. That was I was way, I'm way off. Um, what were you gonna say? I, I almost claimed you as myself. I was oh, almost like, wow. that's me and Tommy Fletch yeah, and yep. um, Arthur Jan Handenberg, colloquially known as AJ. Mm. Yep, that's me. Um, that's actually also, me. Is that also is. here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, thank you for listening to us. We, you can find us on Patreon where we've got bonus episodes of us just talking about stuff and, um, <laughs> some other tidbits there. Quite, you can check us out on Patreon. So quite, quite a way to sell that. it. Yeah. What? We have stuff on there. Yeah. We got, we got lots of stuff. Yeah, I, don't correct. I don't want to bore you. With you. Yeah, uh, good. and plus it's like the sense of mystery. Mm, good. Um, because sometimes Imagine there's a disappointment when they log on and find napkin rings. Mm, or napkin something. Ring. Classical stuff. You should know napkin rings because I'm in guys sometimes like. I just feel like I wake up and I just mm. push the boulder up the up the mountain yeah. and it just and sometimes just rolls back over me yeah. and I go back down and I just roll. I mean, sometimes that's just what life feels like. Sure, um, it's like a Sisyphean mm, task yeah. that I have in front of me. Sisyphusian, <laughs> Sisyphusian, Sisyphusian. Uh, yeah, sorry, <laughs> no, no. Um, it's anyway, right? But Hanenberg is continuing on his Camus train here <laughs> and. Uh, Casmus, Cam- uh-huh. Camus, uh-huh. Albert Camus, and with that introduction, <laughs> let me jump back in. You cannot so, get those two minutes back of your life. I'm so oh sorry. Oh man, a few episodes ago, <laughs> I did Camus. The it's Stran- absurd, Maggie. It was absurdism. Wow. I did Camus the Stranger, and I felt, <laughs> I felt a little alienated. <laughs> you know, maybe you don't understand that pun yet, but you will. I felt a little alienated because I didn't really understand the philosophy behind the book, right? The book seems very odd, and I think it might be known as an existential book. It is not existential. Mm-hmm. It is absurdist. And so I, I wanted to investigate, so I jumped into one of the things that helps to explain his absurd philosophy, which his, is his essay. And I say essay, it's really long. It's like 120, 20-some pages. Woof. <laughs> so his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, and it is kind of his, a little bit of a treatise on what absurdism is and how it works. So boys, you've had the experience that Donaldson ex- described last podcast, probably, of a moment in your life when you experience a truly divine beauty, where the, the world sort of smiles upon you and nature seems at once to be in communion with your soul, everything is right, everything is beautiful, and you have that moment of deep joy, right, where, where you are in communion with all things. Not only have I experienced that, I am the walking embodiment of that. No, I, I feel it every time I look at you indeed. <laughs> cool. Don't call me a man. That's weird. Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah, seriously. And I, I'm willing to bet that you have also had what I would maybe consider the opposite experience. I know I have. And he, he describes this experience where you, for some reason, most of your life live for tomorrow. You live day to day thinking about the future, thinking about your worries, thinking about your work, thinking about all these things. And then at some point, standing at a train station, standing in an ice cream parlor, everything seems alien to you for some reason. All of that extra tomorrow and the next day and all of this meaning, the things that you were worrying about sort of drains from the moment. And then you're, you think, why? Why am I 
in this place? Why am I in this ice cream parlor? Why do we eat frozen cow milk? That's bizarre. And my hands are weird flesh tubes made of goo and a couple of bones in there to keep them wiggling and everything instantly seems alien. Even the actions of other men seem mechanical and not indescribable, unknowable to you, right? Everything seems weird and you all of a sudden feel yourself alienated from all that is around you and realize that the way that you think other men might think might not be. You might not have any understanding of how another human brain works. It might work completely differently to yours. And you have trouble explaining the why of many things. And I am is this I'm, like that. This is not my beautiful house. This is not mm, my beautiful wife. Yeah. That kind of moment. Yeah, yeah kind sure. of kind of essentially, yes, where you have that feeling of alienation. And this is what what they the existential writers called nausea, where all of a sudden you feel alienated from your own world. Hmm. Have you guys felt that? Have you had the opposite feeling? I'm, I'm yeah. willing to get, but guess that Graham probably hasn't felt it in a while. He seems pretty grounded in his meaning, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, if I, <laughs> if Maggie I have, doesn't. <laughs> if I have, I haven't mythologized it in my mind and in my memory, like I have deep joy to be able to talk about it in the way that I have. You know what I mean? Like I haven't, we all have our own history of our life and we've yeah. turned it into a story and as we get older, we probably, it gets real different from what actually happened. So I, if I've had that moment when I was younger or whatever, I actually, this does remind, I think I had that moment when I was in a blockbuster video once. Yep. Um, what uh, happened? I was just, I just remember being like, this is so stupid. <laughs> what, am I, like, what am I doing? These, what am I, like this is. Watching f- things on tape yeah, to I, entertain us and I'm I paying know, for these stories to maybe. watch on a video screen. Yeah. Um, I, 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 like I said, I haven't, I don't have it as um, ready at my fingertips with a mythologized story like I do with Deep Joy. So maybe have you? Um, I've had, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I... Are you having it right now, Hanneburgers? Yeah, we'll find like, we'll no, find, I've never felt this in we'll Hanneburgers. Like, uh-oh. Because like the, I've had those moments of realizing I so totally see the world differently than other people in like a, a like a shock at that. But I don't... It's not the same thing as saying that like life is drained of value or um, of meaning um, or seeing things as meaningless. I wouldn't describe it as that. There are those moments of like feeling alien to a situation, um, a room, a group of people. I don't know if that's the same thing as the nausea, though. You would kind of explain it as extreme consciousness, maybe, and where where the world around you defies sort of a unifying explanation. I don't know. Is this like a wake up sheeple kind of moment (laughs) where you're like sitting on a subway and you're like, I'm the only free thinker. You really don't like this stuff, Graham. (laughs) Yes, kind of, (laughs) except uh, sort of. Yeah, we'll get there. I actually don't think it's a terrible philosophy, and mm. I actually experienced this a ton. And just the the bizarreness of the world, and it goes back to when I was talking about my experience with my grand my granddad mm. and his death. It's bizarre, right? It was a bizarre feeling, and it defied the the feelings and view of death that we usually want to have. Either that it is tragic, or it is noble, or that it is scary. For me, it just felt weird, and I did not feel connected to the world around me. That that said, a listener sent in an email and pointed out that I, I do remember it vividly. So somehow this death affected me. Right. And then the funny thing is, I do have those moments of deep joy logged in my brain. One was when I was at a lake in Canada. Not surprising. Canada's Not surprising. Beautiful. I mean, that's <laughs> where all, yes. most of it, and deep joy resides. Yes. a feeling of supreme freedom and joy when I was driving my car. I think I was 16 and I was only a little ways into driving and it was just a beautiful sunny day and the wind was blowing through my windows and 
I was carefree and the world was great. And Death Cab for Cutie was playing. I actually think the radio was off. Oh, I Once. thought you said Transatlanticism was playing. I Transatlanticism makes me feel a lot of feelings. I don't know if I've had a deep joy. Oh, moment. okay, never mind. But I, the reason I don't, I haven't mythologized the feeling of alienation is that that happens far more often to me. I, I feel that things are weird and defy explanation. Yeah. And I was wondering if you guys had that same experience. <sighs> As I'll have to listen more to see if I understand it because I don't. I don't have a clear moment in mind when I hear that. Um, I have, I've had days where things or just like strange things happen in succession, but I think I still attribute meaning to those things. Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering how I should go about this essay because it's, it's a little bit strangely organized and I'm wondering if I should just try to explain it as best I can. I I think I'm going to try to go through his organization. So he starts and the first thing is kind of his, his reason for writing the essay. And the question is, Suicide. Does man's estrangement from his world require that he opt out of living? And he says, this is the supreme question. All other questions are secondary to this one, because if you can't answer this in the negative, that we should not commit suicide, then nothing else matters. You have to kill yourself. And he says, there's only a few people who are... like a crazy starting place, though, right? It really is. I mean, okay, so... It's the Hamlet question, right? Let me... Yeah, before I jump into this, we, we also got another email from a listener about our treatment of depression and how we often talk about it in terms of the church. And I want to be clear that depression is complicated and that there's both a chemical component and I think a spiritual component and to the degree to which those mix is still unknown to me. I will also say that the classicists would probably say that if there's a chemical component, well, your body has fallen and some men are more prone to some sins than other sins. The question is, was it, is it a sin to be depressed? And no, I'm not sure it always is. Um, so just know that we at Classical Stuff want to treat these things seriously. Like we know there's a chemical component. We know that clinical depression is hard and difficult and real. And we don't fully understand the way that your philosophy, your worldview, your feelings, your choice, your sin works, works into that. I certainly don't. And I think the same is true of suicide. We might treat it lightheartedly here, but suicide is certainly not a lighthearted thing. And if you are at all contemplating it, hear from us a resounding, no, you should not commit suicide. That is a bad idea. Um, so even as we may treat it a little lightly here, know that it's a serious thing. Are you guys with me on that? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So his question is, should we commit suicide? Should I stare in the face of an absurd world and off myself? And I have to, I have to answer that, that before anything. And here in the first few pages is where I found the origin of the stranger, how, how he wrote that book. He'll, he'll talk about it more in depth near the end. Let's see. He, he defines absurdity. This divorce between man and his life, the actor and his setting, is properly the feeling of absurdity. And he explains a little more. A world that can be explained, even with bad reasons, is a familiar world. But on the other hand, in a universe suddenly divested of illusions and lights, man feels alien, a stranger. Right? The subject of this essay is precisely this relationship between the absurd and suicide, the exact degree to which suicide is a solution to the absurd. So the absurd is kind of an interaction between a world that defies explanation and the man that finds himself desiring a unity of that world, which our author Camus calls, calls nostalgia. So we, we as humans want a unifying meaning or explanation. Yeah. And he points out that all attempts to find one via reason have been failures. And most modern philosophers, including including Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, there's a few other ones he mentions here that we'll get to, 
they all admit that reason is not going to do the job and then somehow have to deal with that absurdity. A man who wants a unifying explanation for things and a world that defies reasonable explanation. Yeah, I mean, we told you the Enlightenment wouldn't work back in the day, but whatever. Um, right, exactly. Uh, no, why is suicide then the, the answer? Why not just like, well, there's no, life, there's, right? yeah, right. There's, there's, there's no answer to the absurdity of life, so I'm just going to run out the clock. Okay, we'll get we'll get to okay. the suicide answer. So he, he will answer that, but that's the question: is your world defies explanation? Your reason is never going to do it. You cannot find this unifying principle, mm-hmm. yet you still desire one. You have this nostalgia. So what do you what do you do with it? This is the absurdity, the he divorce take, you feel between those two things. So he takes the fact that there is no understandable explanation that the question does not have an answer he takes that as a given and since that's a given he now will, yes, what do we do point to other right, philosophers well. who have tried to reconcile those things say that they have failed and then continue from there he's not just asserting it he, he yes. will prove that point the yeah. enlightenment project did fail yes he's saying you yeah. can't you can't do it with reason so does yeah. the absurd dictate death you have two options if you want to resolve this tension either you commit intellectual suicide and you say and you find some sort of loophole you can get out of it to find a unifying theory. And he'll point out a, two, a few philosophers who did it. Or you commit physical so you, you lie to yourself. Either you lie to yourself or you make some sort of logical leap. Or you deny reason altogether, which he's not willing to do. Or you commit physical suicide. He says, those seem to be my two options, right? I cannot know unless I pursue without reckless passion in the sole light of, light of evidence the reason of which I am here suggesting the source. This is what I call an absurd reasoning why is there not a third option of of having faith in moving forward that you that we haven't got the answer yet but we can still find it why does he say ah it's not we we did it all and we're now at the end of question we're now at the end of intellectual life and we didn't find it so now we gotta wrestle with that how come there's not like a a faith in the in the project continuing forward i mean he's uh, he's pointed out that it doesn't work and that and that you are an in, like part of it is that you are an individual and thereby in your individuality deny the unity that you seek right you are alone and solely alone and not a unity of these things and you what you are looking for is a unity you yourself negate it's a it's a weird answer and i'm not sure it's fully satisfying yeah. but it's kind of an assumption it's not going to get there if there if there is a god i do not currently know him and i am not satisfied with the evidence right and my, I, I cannot know him through reason. And so I want to apply my reason to the life that I am here living. So that's kind of the beginning. He, he talks about the, the reason for his essay. And then he can talk about the awakening of man. And so here's where I'm going to describe this feeling of absurdity that you guys might connect to. Are, are you ready? Okay. It's a little bit longer of a quote, but here it is. I hope my audience is with me. A step lower and strangeness creeps in. Perceiving that the world is dense sensing to what a degree a stone is foreign and irreducible to us, with what intensity nature or a landscape can negate us. At the heart of all beauty lies something inhuman, and these hills, the softness of the sky, the outline of these trees at this very minute lose the illusory meaning with which we had clothed them, henceforth more remote than a lost paradise. The primitive hostility of the world rises up to face us across a millennia, For a second, we cease to understand it because for centuries we have understood in it solely the images and designs that we had attributed to it beforehand, because henceforth we lack the power to make use of that artifice. The world evades us because it becomes itself again. That stage scenery, masked by habit, becomes again what it is. It withdraws at a distance from us. Just as there are days when under the familiar face of a woman we see a stranger 
Uh, we see as a stranger her we had loved months or years ago. Perhaps we shall even desire what suddenly leaves us come, uh, sorry, perhaps we shall come even to desire what suddenly leaves us so alone. But the time has not yet come. Just one thing, that denseness and that strangeness of the world is the absurd, right? That discomfort in the face of man's own inhumanity, this incalculable tumble before the image of what we are, this nausea of a writer today calls it, is also the absurd, right? There, there seems to be one thing we are sure of, and that is death. Death is coming mm. for us, and that's what we deal with. So does that, does that, did that help you connect with it at all? Is this the big pit that they scream at in Garden State? <laughs> yes. I mean, is the yeah. big death? Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> As Iron and Wine will start playing in the background yeah, exactly. as we keep talking. Was it Iron Wine or was it, uh, it, was was it um, maybe it was Iron Wine. I thought it was, um, uh, shoot, uh, Broken Bells. I don't remember. Um, it's a hipster movie, kids. Go, go Google it. Don't. <laughs> Actually, just don't. Yeah. Um, shoot. Yes, I get it. I think. I wonder if what we were describing with the deep joy of romanticism as like a small little glimpse of what we were made for in terms of heaven, if what he's describing is not the small little glimpse of what we could be made for in hell. Like this, so like disunity. Like, so there, this idea of that Earth and like our terrestrial existence ends up being like the antechamber to uh, to is that the antechamber? Like the, the beginning, the, first part, yes. the beginning of either one of those realities. So like um, your time on Earth could have been like a prelude to heaven, and everything was leading you towards that, or your time on Earth could be a prelude to hell and leading you towards that alienation, that aloneness, that being a stranger to reality. And I wonder if what Camus is describing is feelings where, where the where that being the destination, if things keep on trucking the way they're going, oh my goodness, this is what it means. If he's not describing like anti deep joy, yeah, because then that would I've had those encounters with friends from high school that you see them ten years down the line and um, they have moved closer to hell than they have to heaven, mm-hmm. and in that way is a picture toward that. That's not, but that still attributes a meaning to. I'm able to look at that and say, "You are," but they're but they look at it and they say, correct. "Crazy madness." Maybe they say th- meaninglessness. But that's why I'm having trouble with this because mm-hmm. I would need to see it as meaningless not as pointed toward hell correct isn't that yeah it's not it's not there is to to the absurd man there is no future life yeah yeah well there is nothing after death because it's unknowable right right. here's here's another quote of whom and of what indeed can i say i know that this heart within me i can feel and i judge that it exists this world i can touch and i likewise judge that it exists there ends all my knowledge and the rest is construction so if you if you strip away all that man has constructed to explain his world, this is what we have. We know that that's going to end in death, and this is the absurd. I I want something to explain everything, but my my reason can't do it. Why not? Because it well, can't. It literally cannot fail. Part. I mean, you, sorry, it can't. I was gonna, you agree with the Enlightenment part, Graham? That reason alone is not sufficient Correct. to give a reason. It does not surprise me that Camus it looks back and says, "We've been working towards a grand unifying theory of, of meaning using reason alone, and it didn't work." It didn't work. So we, now, what do we do? We know yes. it didn't work, and that's that's what he explains in the in the part just proceeding to the part that I read. Right, this very heart, which is mine, will forever remain indefinable to me. Between the certainty I have of my existence and the content I try to give to that assurance, the gap will never be filled. Forever I shall be a stranger to myself. Right? It's, it's as far as we can go. Again, I just, Graham and I are probably not going to buy this for most of the 
um, episode, right? Like there is a part of us that is secret to ourselves. There is also self-knowledge that is possible. Um, there is actually, there is also actually meaning to, um, everything that happens around us. So that's, yeah. Um, I do not, uh, in listening to this, I don't have a time that I associate with this. Um, I'll have to keep listening though. I'm sure there, I'm sure there's more again. I'm sure there's something that can, I mean, maybe you might, you might never have had this experience. Uh, what, what they call, I, I certainly have. And not that it's the world defies any explanation. It's just a sudden feeling of alienation and of, Resistance to, I think what I mentioned, it might have been in our banter in between episodes, it might have been in the last episode, but how much of the meaning of everyday phenomena comes from human, assigned human meanings, right? Just like a knife has cut you up the middle. If a surgeon did it, it's surgery. If a killer did it, it's murder. The knife did the same thing, one way or the other. Yeah, but we don't tell history from the knife's perspective. Um, and that's and that's just the point, is that the knife did a thing. That is what is real. Everything right. else that we are adding to it is human construction. The history was human. The yeah. meaning was human. The words murder and so the interpretation. surgery. The interpretation is all but the knife doesn't, human. But the knife doesn't do anything. It's either a murderer or a, uh, a doctor. Who right. Is in, well, in, in, in truth, in it was just a person. His motives are even more different than what's what's real in reality right his motives aren't aren't real and so so he has no thing that happened he has no faith that he can um ascribe the same level of humanity that he has to another person so it's like this is a the problem of a solipsism right how can i ever know that the reason someone does some, what they're doing is because of the reasons that i do what i'm doing well i think he feels confident that he can do it for well yeah i mean he says other people are unknowable i myself am partially unknowable the world is a confusing thing and that i want to unify and why is he writing to. an essay well, so that's that. we'll, we'll get he to will. the difficulties oh, right. he'll answer that question there right. in a little bit yeah he actually will answer because have you read this before yes but ultimately camus doesn't commit suicide right so he must yeah. have it if if Camus takes us his starting place either kill yourself or don't he has answered the question to say yes. we shouldn't kill ourselves isn't it the struggle the rock in this you've said it's not existentialism it's kind of existent because that meaning is self-created right at some point um i guess we'll get and whatever we'll get into more of that stuff later but um yeah yeah so if you guys are are resisting this i it would make sense because you are people who believe in a world after this one mm-hmm. right which adds this unity of meaning to the world that we otherwise can't have if you yep. don't believe in that other world after this one if you just want what your reason can give you you cannot get to that other world. It is not a reasonable thing. And so if he is like, I want just what my reason can give me and only that, and I'm not going to add anything else to it, then you end in the world of the absurd. Okay, If yes. Um, Chesterton's got a great line about people who are hyper-rational or people who only want to live in the realm of reason are crazy people. Yes. Are the people that think the movement of every blade of grass has some sort of like conspiracy against them. Um, okay. So uh, let me let me do some more okay. summary here right, really sure. fast yeah, exactly. because we can we can get to the discussion of the theory in in a minute. Yeah. Um, so he he then points out a few philosophers that sort of start where he starts and then do the intellectual suicide thing. Right. They see the walls closing in on them. They realize that they cannot explain the universe, and so they have to figure out some way to explain the chaos. They are them. They want a unity. The world is not unifiable. And so what do they do? That's quite fun. Who does, he, who does he name? He talks about Jaspers, and he says, reason's failure proves transcendence. So That's what Buller? Jaspers says. Says Buller? And s- <laughs> Jaspers, <laughs> yes, what do you think yes, about yes, the meaning of life? Yes, <laughs> yes his butler. Apparently, yes, exactly, yes. his butler says, 
It's because reason has failed that proves that there is something that transcends reason and that proves that the world is transcendent. And that is how he dodges the question. Sure. And he's like, but that's a logical leap. Just because your reason failed doesn't prove that the, there is a, an ethereal thing out there called transcendence. It sure. just means your reason has failed to explain it. Sure. It might be chaos. Um, nice try, then he Jaspers. talks about a guy named Chestov who ends up saying that the absurd is God. Okay. That that everything okay. that defies our explanation is God. And he's like, yeah, except the point of the absurd is that it negates God, right? Like there there is no unifying principle. And so that's kind of a an intellectual leap. He also talks about Kierkegaard who requires the sacrifice of the intellect. Oh, like, he does not anyone, but Kierkegaard's my boy. <laughs> Good for you. Sorry. He, he basically says the absurd is a criterion for another world. And in that we find God. And he's like, yes, but that requires that I sacrifice my intellect, which is the one thing I am not allowed going to do. I'm going to retain my intellect and drive it to its conclusion. And if you want to construct something else out of that, I won't, Accept it. I want what you can show me in this world. What's his argument for Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard sacrificing his intellect? Does I don't he know. Get into it? So okay. to be honest, this is a really hard to understand essay. It's very French and he uses a lot of gotcha. ethereals and he goes in a lot of circles. And it. I don't know if it's very, it's not so much a clear argumentation as sort of a description of feeling. Do you want to give me like of. a, do you want me to give like a one sentence synopsis of Kierkegaard or no? Sure. Yeah, that'd be helpful. So Kierkegaard took the story of Abraham, God telling Abraham, hey, you're going to have an entire nation from your son, Isaac. And hey, I want you to sacrifice Isaac on this mountain. And Abraham being like, okay, to both of those things and going up and willing to sacrifice Abraham or Isaac on the mountain as the story of how mankind should live outside of the bounds of reason, having faith in in having being this person of like shoot what is it a knight of in of a knight of infinite resignation or something like that anyway um there but, you go re resigning yeah but having yes but having yeah. the, the idea that like the faith in the unreasonable request from god is the position that mankind should take is to sort of open themselves up in faith to what seems absurd i guess and then and he says, Camus says, like, well, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not opening myself up to having faith in, in that the promise will play itself out in the light of the promise seeing seemingly unreasonable. Okay. Anyway. Sure. Yeah. All right. Let me. Oh, let me we got to do an episode on Kierkegaard. Um, let me hustle through. But yeah, right. Kierkegaard's great. We'll get some let me hustle or. through a little bit more. So here's Camus' position. He says, I want to know whether I can live with what I know and with that alone. I am told again that here the intelligence must sacrifice its pride and reason bow down. But if I recognize the limits of reason, I do not therefore negate it, recognizing its relative powers. I merely want to remain in this middle path where the intelligence can remain clear. So maintain what the intelligence can establish, not get rid of it, right? Absurdity doesn't require total chaos. Right. He says, I can be reasonable to a point, but at a certain point it becomes either metaphor. Like when we're talking about physics, when we get to atoms, we explain it. Not mm -hmm. really exactly what's happening, but an approximation. We get to poetry, right? He's like, I want to stay where reason can actually talk. And then we, he, we, so he sort of gives us the feeling of the stranger and where that comes from. Like he gives it sort of a design of what that guy looks like. He feels that all things are innocent, right? He's assured there's a sin of... Here, I'll, I'll just read it. Um, he's, so he's describing... Merceau, the guy, the guy from the stranger or. Well, no, he's just, he's, he's kind of talking about the absurd, the absurd man, man and it sounds general. crazy yeah. similar to the actual character. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, 
All he can reply is that he doesn't fully understand that it's not obvious, right? He's asked to leap, right? To, to a leap to the gods. And he's like, I don't get it. It's not obvious to me. Indeed, he does not want to do anything but what he fully understands. He is assured that this is the sin of pride, but he doesn't understand the notion of sin, that perhaps hell is in store, but he has not enough imagination to visualize that strange future, that he is losing immortal life, but that seems to him an idle consideration. An attempt is made to get him to admit his guilt. He feels innocent. To tell the truth, that is all he feels, his irreparable innocence. This is what allows him everything. Hence, what he demands of himself is to live solely with what he knows, to accommodate himself to what he is, and to bring in nothing that is not certain. He is told that nothing is, but this at least is a certainty. And it is with this that he is concerned. He wants to find out if it is possible to live without appeal. That man does not exist. That is a construction of Camus. Camus wants that man to exist, but that no, man no, that's, does not that's exist. his point. Is this right. is the absurd man uh, that you have to get, have a focused attention to keep to keep these little explanations and this intellectual suicide from sort of breaking in on you. Yep. This is how he wants to live. He feels that he is innocent because all like all assignments of guilt come from one of those big explanations of all the people, and he's like, I feel innocent. I've done nothing wrong. All of this extra stuff you're putting on me is nothing to what. I see. And he, he brings that right into his answer about suicide. He says to, uh, to that it, life will be lived all the better if it has no meaning. Living an experience, a particular fate, is accepting it fully, right? So to live out the absurd life is a conscious revolt against this weird opposition he feels. And that is sort of freedom, right? It's, it is not aspiration. It's devoid of hope that that revolt is the certainty of crushing fate without the resignation that ought to accompany it. So I see that I will die. I know that that's true. I am a slave to it. But I will live and accumulate as much experience as I can before I die and revolt against that truth. And in doing that, not resign myself to this death, right? And he goes on to talk about freedom in a really similar way to Fight Club. Basically, once you hit bottom and you have hopelessness, you are free to do whatever, Never. right? If I, if I strip all meanings from all things, then and really all I'm trying to do is accumulate sensual experience, not sensual as a sexy, but sense experience and that sort of thing, then anything is really permitted. Like there might be consequences. Sure, you don't have to say that they aren't there, but right. I am like everything is equal because it's all going to be swallowed up in death anyway. And it's better to live it as fully as I can before I kick it. Right. This yeah. is this is the arguments that the Vikings made in the Battle of the White Horse. Yes, the Gunthrum and Ogier and Elf and the other guy, um, I can't remember his name, um, making the argument about varying degrees of since there's nothing in the end, either eat, drink, tomorrow we die, or you know, um, uh, accumulating sensual experiences, or just like. You find your meaning in the fight, which is what Gunthrum gets to. It's like there's some moment in the middle of bloodlust where you feel alive and everything else is just a, is a death. So you, you, you fight to get those moments of feeling alive. You, yeah. You this, are, is what, this is what it sounds like. You are here to accumulate experience, right? You, you, have, you, are, you are alive now. Tomorrow you die. And that certainty of death, that coming negation provides you a certain freedom, right? You are either a slave to this unifying idea that you had of the world right? Like, like you fellows are slaves to Christianity. I, but you are, 
right? What'd you say? I said, dang. Oh. I mean, God, God, the Bible makes no hemming and hawing about that. You are a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Correct. Right? It, it does not beat around the bush. You are a slave to it, right? You are either a slave to this thing. Sounds. Galatians 4. Yeah. Or you are a slave to your ultimate coming death. And in that, you can be resigned resigned to it and find a freedom. Doesn't matter. Should I write a book? Well, it doesn't really matter. So you can Why not? whether you do or not. I, I do or not. And so he, he begins to say that the eye sort of becomes this roving camera where you record, you can record all sensual experience and not necessarily put all these extra judgments upon it. Does he goes he, on to give sort of three sketches of this, of this kind of man. One I is ask, Don Juan. Does, does each person get to make that decision? So say for Don Juan, is he right to make whatever choice he eventually makes for, uh, his really, does he get to choose his own source of happiness, right? Does each person get to have that freedom to do that? Happiness is a weird thing that he only addresses at the very end. The importance seems to Meaning, be revolt. Meaning, purpose, whatever. Right? Yeah. That, can I revolt however I want to? Yeah, sure. He actually gives three sketches. So Don Juan finds his sensual experience in many women, right? He's like, why do I have to love one woman to have extreme, to love deeply? I can love deeply many, many women. And in that, find my rebellion from everything else, right? I... I think he's possibly misunderstanding Don Juan, but yeah. I think Don Juan was maybe sunk in in lust and was not necessarily thinking of conscious revolt against the absurd. Right? But Don but, Juan will never have the experience of loving only one woman. That's true, and but he that's, didn't want that experience. Right? I mean, he he. That's the thing is, as long as he is conscious of his absurd state in the universe, it doesn't matter what he chooses. Either way, right? There's, he is choosing equal meaning to either in. Camus. Yes. Oh, well, he is choosing to revolt against death. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's the thing. Like that, you are feeling the freedom that he has provided for you, where you you can do whatever you want to. It's like that that gift for the guy in his office. He's just like smacking his keyboard and flipping pages <laughs> over, and he's like, "Oh, screw this, screw this, screw this." The the important thing is that you you get quantity, right? Like as much life as you can have hmm. because so, so maybe as a completionist of video games this should appeal to you somebody who enjoys I getting have, that little 100 percent steam achievement at least back in your in your former days yeah think about that like life getting getting the achievements yeah. for for life i i have said many times it's the wrong way to play video games in the same way that when i read a book i if i get past page 70 i will finish that book that is a horrible way to read books you get a little steam little achievement pops up when you're well, done after i finish a book yeah when Ba-ding. i finish purgatory i'll get that on my merit badge list yeah anyway no this is not good yeah, so he talks about Don Juan, the conqueror, and the actor as the three sort of paragons examples. I don't feel like I need to go into that. He right. sort of shows it how it plays out in these three types of people and how like the artist marries themselves to their art and sacrifices any... And, and like through all of the things that they live, they live this crazy experience. So they're sensualists all in just various different ways. Yeah, the sensualists artist, in very different the, ways. The lover, mm-hmm. and the, what was the third one? The conqueror. conqueror. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I got you. Like, yeah, so, so the, he, Viking, the Vikings of... He of multiplies yeah, yeah. his personality, right? He works out the thing he's sure of, which is himself, yeah. in his art form, which is his conquering. Yeah. Um, and then he asks the question, well, can you do art as an absurdist? Like, does the fact that you're going to die mean that no art is possible? He says, well, you can do art so long as it's absurdist, right? That it recognizes that there is no unifying principle and that you don't attempt to give the world the unifying principle. Then the novel becomes a revolt and you can just as soon choose not to write it it doesn't matter because you are under the freedom of this no that, that you will eventually die so write the book doesn't matter there's no prosperity you're not going to live to see it uh if you want to do it to express yourself and to have more experience that's fine as long as you're conscious and you are not falling back into the slavery of the nostalgia for unity you guys tracking so far yes yeah, he- okay and then I- he kind of explains what he means by 
He, he talks a little bit about the Brothers K. I would Ivan. not want Albert Camus to marry my sister. <laughs> yeah, probably not. After reading The Stranger, you don't <laughs> probably want Merceau anywhere near your family either, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he does his about writing, and then he talks about Dostoevsky, and some of the characters there are, are dealing with these big questions, right? Mm-hmm. Dostoevsky himself dealt with these big questions, and so he has... Does he name characters? Like yeah, I, he, Ivan from Brothers K? Yeah, and, that's one of the ones he names. Yeah. He says, weirdly enough, it seems like Dostoevsky's on the side of Ivan. He, <laughs> he has to... That that bit was written in like two weeks because that's how he felt. And he then the rest of it was argument written Ivan. in like yeah. three months. And it requires humiliation and shame. Like yeah. that's his answer yeah. to all of these things that Ivan brings up. Right. If you're curious about that, you can go back and listen to our episode, The Grand Inquisitor. Grand Inquisitor. Yes, but Alyosha still kisses him at the end. Right. And, and he mentions a guy named Kirillov who eventually commits suicide. Uh, he, his revolt is suicide. He says, well, I... So is Ivan's. I don't believe God exists yeah. and in, in that I am God. And so the, the only way that I can express my true freedom is through suicide. That is how I will, sh- how I will like revolt against the thing that has made me and show that I have the power over my own life is to end it. Sure. But so then Camus really doesn't care about the answer to the question then. Right. So if he's posing, why should one not kill oneself? Someone could still choose to kill themselves to show their freedom. And that's their revolt. Correct? Yeah. Right. Don't, don't those both exist within this? I, I, I need to read that part again to, yeah. to correctly answer this question, I think. Yeah. But maybe he would say most people should not or don't have to, I guess. There's no command. The meaninglessness of, ni- of life would not dictate that people have to do this. I remember watching an interview with Ethan Hawke, the actor, and someone, and they're asking like a very uh, sort of, you know, milquetoast question like, so Ethan, why are you, and why did you decide to be an actor? And he looked at the camera, looked at the, at the interviewer and said, like, the first question one needs to ask is, why wouldn't you kill yourself? And then when you've answered that question, then you can answer why you're an actor. And I was like, He's been this is why out. I don't like Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. All right. And lastly, the last little section is when he talks about the myth of Sisyphus and why Sisyphus is an ideal for the absurd man. So he stole the secrets of the gods. He... Uh, wanted to test his wife's love, so he told her to chuck him in the public square when he was dead. And apparently she did. And so he wanted to go back and yell at his wife. But while he was up there, he had such a good time that he didn't want to come back. So he sort of like set up shop on the coast of Italy and was just enjoying the water and the sun and everything. And finally, the gods are like, all right, man, it's you can't be up here anymore. You're a shade. It's time to go back down. And that's when his rock was waiting for him. And then his... His like walk back down the mountain is sort of that consistent revolt. Yes, he is resigned to his fate, but it's his rock. This is his fate. Yeah, God this gave is, it to him though. Yeah, but he is he is resigned to it. Now that this is his world, he can live freely within it. And he even goes so far as to say you have to imagine him as a happy man. He's a happy character. One must imagine Sisyphus happy is the very end. Mm-hmm. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart, right? The universe is, the verse is dark, and he's going to leave him at the foot of the mountain, looking up and saying that this is this is the thing that he is left with. And he can live it and choose to live it in revolt of what the gods have given him and turn down and trod, da- trod down the mountain and then turn around and lift the rock back up again and rejoice in his fate that he has sort of been a revolting in the sense of he he experienced he, he expressed revolt to character so to the gods. The, the happiness of man is just the perpetual exercising of your will. Yes. Yeah. He says that this, this is the magnificence of man is his, his expression of his own freedom in that hopelessness, right? This is what lends life, all of its, 
all of its importance, all of its grandeur, all of its nobility is man's revolt against this weird duality of an unknowable universe and the unity he wants. Uh, he revolts against it and he lives not adding any extra crazy meaning to things, but living out what he's got and, and adhering to his intellect. So, so those overarching stories about of meaning must be thrown off such yes. that to get to the point then where it's my ultimate freedom, my ultimate choice that dictates what I do, even if it's functionally a meaningless tax, uh, task pushing a rock up a mountain, mm-hmm. I can still attribute full meaning to that. Right. Yeah. And still live a full life that way. So living only in the bounds of your own willpower and ascribing what you what you do and you will to do as the universe, as the the the, the container of your meaning, is also ironically how Milton describes hell. Like carrying the hell within you, I myself am hell. So Camus is just saying, like, yeah. And Sisyphus is happy there because he has his own, because he, he gets to do it all on his own. He gets like, you know, it's his, it's, it's, it's his playground. It's his, it's his willpower that the only, the only action that we have in this universe is to basically like hold up our middle finger to the universe because, and say like, screw you universe, I'm going to do whatever I want. Not necessarily an attractive philosophy to me. Do you agree with that characterization? So if you guys would like, we can move from expressing the philosophy to critiquing it. No, that, have you I know finished, that you've been... Have you finished the, uh, the, uh, the Essentially, the that's, at the, that's the, the essay. Is, well, I mean, so... Suicide is, is not necessary. We can live in revolt against this weird absurdity that we feel in the universe. So instead of trying to bring meaning to my grandpa's death, I can just say, yeah, it was weird. So people who may not know, Sisyphus, he, he was resigned to pushing a rock to the top of the hill and then it always rolling back and him not being able to complete the task and him going back and doing it again. Yep. So just for, be, if people forever, didn't know right? for forever. And not he would he uh, he would never die. Mm-hmm. Part of that, so right? people didn't know that reference. Yes. He's a rock that's, lister. That's, that's his job now. Sisyphus, forever. What Sisyphus yeah. does. So if they, so if someone calls something a Sisyphean task, it is on you cannot accomplish it or it's really really hard and it kind of means meaningless, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Which would be again in contradiction to what Camus is saying. Yeah. You'd, so if someone helped him out and like got the rock to the top Camus would say Sisyphus would be sad. Because there's no more work? Because there's no more meaning. Uh, I don't know. Then his his world is larger and he just, he does not have to ascribe guilt or like he's innocent and the world is as as it is. And this is the thing about absurdity is it removes all hierarchy. So the general is just as good as the peasant. Uh, There is no difference to them. They will both eventually die. They can either live out their revolt with full consciousness or they can be slaves to the unifying idea. How come the living out of my revolt can't be expressed in the vast slaughter of my enemies and it have can. that be fine? It could be. Sure. Yeah, he actually talks about the conqueror. Do it. So it will be met with the consequence of dying, most likely. Yeah, you'll be killed for it. You're not free you, of consequence. You're... But but I am innocent. Uh, yeah. That doesn't negate consequences. He, right. he addresses that. Mm. Just because you feel innocent doesn't, doesn't, doesn't change mean you that people are, are going to kill you for right. it. Right, exactly. But those are lesser people. Those are right, isn't that the? Oh, they're people just like you are. They they just might be enslaved to a unifying principle yeah. that have, they've cooked up out of nowhere, and you know that that's coming from nowhere and is not jiving with the intellect. Yeah. So we're back to great man. Maybe it's not the exact same as great man theory, but it seems pretty close, right? Mm-hmm. Some people throw off the shackles, and some people 
Don't. But, but that has an sheeple. inherent like that has an inherent greater lesser, and this doesn't. This is mm. the evening of the playing field. Everyone is equal. We're all no, no. Then there, there's there's the he the, would say the people who believe in an overarching theory are lesser in yeah. some sense. It yes, lesser. which is which is honestly the the trouble. All of, the normies are, uh, you know, they're incomplete. Incomplete. Uh, things clearly. Yes, um, they have just you know their intellect taking, is not awakened. Yeah, just taking what the world gives them as given. Yep. So not here's thinking the thing. for themselves, yeah. like me. Yeah, I think that in the absence of the eternal, this is a pretty satisfying philosophy. I think if I wasn't a Christian, this is pretty compelling. Well, if you're not a Christian, what else is there? And that's my yeah. That's exactly the point. Is when you when you have no assurance of the eternal world, then this is what you've got, but I'm not even sure it's satisfying. So here, here's my critique of this, even internally, not necessarily externally, not having to prove the eternal life and then coming back to this. Yeah. Th- these are internal problems. He says that that revolt is what lends all the nobility and magnificence to man's life. But the problem is nobility and magnificence are value judgments that cannot be arrived to by reason. Rationally, right? Right. That any any judge, value judgment like that, magnificence, maybe nobility, how how does intellect establish nobility? It it doesn't. If he wants to chase his intellect to its absolute bitter end, it must mean the removal of all value judgments. We we see ourselves here. What is to say what is good or bad? And in fact, he even kind of tries to say that we are all innocent. There is no overarching meaning, and so if there's no overarching meaning, nothing can be noble. Right. He does the thing that that Chesterton points out. All these guys, uh, Nietzsche with his higher and greater and mm-hmm. what they really want to mm-hmm. say is mm-hmm. it's better. more good, yep. it's better. Right. And what they are trying to do is dodge that by using words like magnificent right. or noble or things like that. But that's what they mean is it's it's better, it's a good thing. Right. But they have to get their notion of good from somewhere other than reason because reason cannot provide it. Yeah, this reminds me of... Uh, there was this a scientific journal article about somebody who had received a brain injury. And essentially what had happened uh, with their brain was um, uh, the part of the brain that, that was damaged was the brain that sort of reacts instinctively or I, I, I just I'm, I'm remembering it poorly and I'm not scientifically adept enough to know the differences. Essentially, functionally, what ended up happening to this individual was that their brain was... Um, um, function mostly on being hyper rational. So, the, so, and, and what what got people interested in this character was that he wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. And when someone would say, "Well, why you, you got to get up in bed and go to work?" the question of why should I get up and why should I go to work and all these sorts of things led the, him down to just sort of like continually asking these questions of, "Well, why am I doing this kind of thing?" And um, and because he couldn't get to any sort of answer, he remained essentially motionless in bed. So I think it started off where he had, yeah, um, I think he had even was a railway worker and had gotten like a spike up his nose in an accident and it mm. punctured his oh, brain. This guy. Yeah, he's famous. And um, if we're talking about the same and guy. And so he was stuck in bed and they were like, well, why is this guy not getting up? He's healthy enough to move around. Why won't he actually get out? And it was, he was also thinking about like, should I get up on the left side of bed or right side of the bed? Which side of the bed is the better side of the bed for me to get up on? And he was trying to sort of continuously ask this question about what was 
the, the, the rational thing to do in the morning. And he couldn't get to the conclusion I should get up and, and go eat and go to work because even the idea of eating is better than not eating was broken. Well, I mean, that's the thing for, for listeners who don't understand why rationality cannot provide no, senses of nobility or good. I mean, you can keep on asking questions about why I should do a certain action. Like, why, sh- why should I get up and eat? Well, because it's going to make you healthy and because being alive is good. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, how, how do you know it's good? It's simply that we seem to prefer being alive over being dead and we have no experience of what it's like to be dead. It could be just fine, especially if you're having kind of a bad day. How do you know that being dead is not is is not preferable? And so this is what he's getting to. And which even is, yeah. even human life, like. Why is, why is life a good thing? Why must those things that are alive try to perpetuate their own life? Why is an alive squirrel any better than a dead rock? There is nothing in reason that says it is, simply that we seem to prefer it. Um, what is there, how does reason prove that revolt, conscious revolt, is any better than senseless slavery to a unifying idea? There's nothing in reason that says it is better. There is only something in ethics, in grounded in what C.S. Lewis calls the Tao that can provide that that notion of good or evil. Good or evil are senseless when it comes to reason. Reason cannot prove them. Reason simply can say what is advantageous to life or yourself, but why should you have the advantage over other people? And this simply said, because you seem to like it. So it becomes a question of yeah, preference, preference right? right? And he he cannot provide this. My other big and this, or just that, before so you move on from the yeah, towel, okay. like this ended up being the big crux of that famous debate between um, uh, Peterson and uh, oh, who's that uh, new atheist? Um, Sam. Sam Harris. Yeah. And this is what they sort of drilled down on was the idea of how do you make value and moral judgments if you don't believe that in sort of objective value and morals? Peterson coming from the objective values and moral side, Harris coming from the instinct and preference side. And uh, it's, it's, it was a really great sort of good debate anyway so yeah and then so he he kind of appeals to a system that he himself is trying to abandon which mm. and that's why you guys say why write the essay mm-hmm. and that's the point I, he would say because it's an, I, it I is an expression it, right? of his revolt and mm-hmm. he's right. chosen it freely so you're trying to convince me and but that's the thing is i could never say that it's better that he did and he couldn't say that it's better that he did. He might say it's noble or it's it's a magnificent expression of his revolt, but what does that mean except it's good? Do you think he cares about convincing people or He uses those words repeatedly yeah. that that revolt is like conscious revolt is what brings splendor to a man's life and splendor what it, like that what does that mean except good goodness yeah. that Chesterton points out that all these guys try to appeal to it without ever establishing it with their reason. And the funny thing is is you pointed out the the thing about Milton here, he's talking about oh, that the it, character. They're talking about hell, just or ones gilding it. Y- yes, well, like we can reign in hell. What does yeah, that yeah. mean? Reign in Better hell. to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Correct. Yep. So he is talking about a character named Kirillov, the guy who kills himself as sort of a form of protest to show that he is like he realizes that God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That means he. That means he is God, and to show it, he kills himself. Right? I am in charge of my own life. I will show that by ending it. And the, the character at the end of the Brothers K says, we shall meet again. Like, the, the, one of us will die. There's a sick kid that's going to die. And he's like, we will all tell each other how it went. We're going to meet together in the afterlife. Like, there is something after this and expresses that. And mm-hmm. this is what Kimu writes right after. There is no longer any question of suicide or madness. What is the use for anyone who is sure of immortality and its joys? Man exchanges his divinity for happiness. 
And that, I think, is the, mm. is the thing that C.S. Lewis is expressing. It's the thing that Chesterton expresses. This is the choice between personal divinity, which means I am God, or happiness. Happiness in slavery to a unifying idea. And that is, I mean, that is the single thing. Living I want in the to, matrix. I want to be God. Mm-hmm. And so I will sacrifice my happiness for that divin- divinity right. or I want happiness and I will sacrifice being in charge of my life for that happiness. To submitting to some mythos or whatever. To submitting to some mythos. And that is where I think he expresses the same sentiment that the devil expresses, that that many of these philosophies express, that he wants to be God in charge of his own life and he sees it as noble. And even if it means sacrificing happiness. You sounded more positive about The Stranger a few weeks ago than you're sounding now. Do you, have you changed your mind from reading The Myth of Sisyphus or? So here's the thing. I I really wish this podcast was longer because my next question was going to be, what is good that we can take from this? And what are, what are Christian principles? And I think that there are a few. And because again, I said this last time, I'll say it again, that freedom that you have from realizing there are things that don't matter, I think is really helpful. And the idea of defining a value for your life and yourself, I think is also really helpful. It's the, but there have to be boundaries around the, well, yeah, you can become a conqueror and kill as many people as you want. And that's equal to becoming St. Teresa. You know what I mean? Yes. and, And there has to be some way of recognizing better and worse goals in life. But that idea of freedom of action, I think is really helpful to take from this. Yeah. So here's where I kind of land. Uh, I think his, his notion of freedom under the impending certainty of death is a good one, uh, especially for Christians, right? If you accept the doctrine, the unifying doctrine that like, I have to leave it and leave a legacy and be famous and have my progeny. Change the, the world. The, the world is going to be obliterated. Whether you change it or not, it's, it's, go, it's going away, <clears throat> right? And but well, hold on, new heaven, new earth, right? So yeah, new heaven, new earth. So on an eternal scale, you are, you are absolutely certain of your knowledge that you will live for an eternity. And that turns the volume down on everything that happens in this life because it occupies literally no space, right? It's, but, but there are things we do in this life that affect eternity. And those are the things that matter. Anything that is not eternal will be swallowed up in this eternity. I think as far as it from the Christian ethos perspective. Kings bring in their treasures in Revelation. Like there's some, again, there's a, resur- we have resurrected bodies. There's a new earth. There are things that will, you know, making, it's a related point to what you're saying, but there's more, I think that's eternal than, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Wouldn't it be more fair to say, instead of saying that there is a meaninglessness or there, that it turns down the volume on things on this earth, because in light of the eternity, in light of eternity, wouldn't it be more fair to say that, it turns for up the, the volume? For, no, no. For the person who loves God and for the person who is now in Christ, eternity has begun. Is now. Yes. And so the things that you're doing right now, um, it's not like, oh, well, we just have to run out the clock until eternity, until we Correct. until we get to heaven. It's actually God has called us to live heavenly now. Now. Yeah. And so um, we do that now. Yeah. Yes. So here, and so then everything. So then the volume is turned up and everything we do. Here's the. So we should be a little concerned if we're just wasting living, our, wasting our time, or yeah. living for living for cash yes. or whatever. Here's the way that I kind of talk about nihilism. This the the hopelessness that he's sort of addressing here is that everything that we have is both infinitely meaningful and infinitely meaningless. He says that. No, this you is how I that. talk about okay. it. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is probably his perspective too. Everything we do matters because it's the only thing we'll ever have. But it doesn't matter because we'll die and it'll go away. I think that he finds obliteration of the now in the void. 
and Christians can find obliteration of the now in the eternal, which is way different. So these things that we have will last forever and we'll have like, the thing is, is it actually does turn the volume up on some things, but so does nihilism, right? Everything is infinitely important. It's the only one you'll ever have. This moment is past. You'll never get it back. For Christians, the moment is past. You'll never get it back. But hey, there's a lot more coming. So the the volume gets turned up, and on some things, it stays up. Your eternal choice really matters. What you do with your body really matters. The peop, the way you treat people really matters. Some of those systems systems of value are a real thing, but there are systems of value that mankind and especially Christians have adopted that are not good and not given on an eternal timeline. Sure, but what you're just describing is Christians should live according to the Christian ethic. Yep. Yeah, I, yes. I'm, I'm describing orthodoxy. Yeah, but... Um, I'm simply saying so, that like, living with an eternal perspective is important, and sometimes it bears a shocking resemblance to living with a nihilistic perspective. I don't know about that. Augustine, like Augustine, the idea of that eternity is just the eternal now, the eternal present, right? Um, uh, he... Uh, meaning gets sort of sucked out of out of everything in the nihilistic perspective because you can't ascribe anything to it. So the, the conqueror is just as meaningful or meaningless as the as the good old you know as like as the farmer yeah. in um, in um, Canterbury Tales. But um, but it also but, adds because it's it is infinitely precious because it's the only thing they'll ever get. No, but I mean that doesn't. So what? It's not precious. I mean like uh, it's only precious in so far as it means anything. Um, if it's the only thing they're ever going to get, like it does, it means everything. It's the only thing I'll ever have for, for the nihilist. This world means absolutely everything because it is the last he will ever have. And it is slowly slipping away from him. Every single moment yeah. holds so the only thing for that he, him, infinite meaning. No, 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 no. If it's slowly slipping away from him, every moment holds like anxiety and dread. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes. And, that, and that's what he's talking about. And that's the yeah. that is not, and, and, and that the fact that, um, heaven starts now in the heart of, for the for the the person who is found in Christ. It is the opposite of anxiety and dread. It is um, uh, the peace which passes all understanding. Yes. Those are very different things. Yes, we but we get that same like assurance of the eternal world and that death is not coming for us. Gives this and, and getting to be enslaved to a God who really matters gives us the same feeling of freedom that He describes. Does it matter if I write a book or not? Only insofar as it touches souls for eternity. No, Other than that, it doesn't really matter. Camus says, I will choose or not choose to pay my taxes and suffer the consequences and those and those will be mine, but everything is fleeting and anxiety and dread comes in. And the Christian sa- doesn't say, I will choose or not choose to pay my taxes because in the light of eternity, taxes don't matter. Right. The Christian says, I will choose to pay my taxes, not because taxes matter, but because my soul matters. Yeah. So, and, so I think we're agreeing with each no, other. No, no. Um, the I Christian, think we are. No, because the can Christian... Can you express what I'm trying to... Ex- can we... The Christian has things that he has to do, and there are things that the Christian is not allowed to do. There is nothing that the ex- that the Camus believer is not allowed to do. I know. I agree with you. So just let me... I, so, then not, how are, so then how are these we things are, shockingly we, the same? We are agreeing with each other. We are agreeing with each other. So... Explain. Oh, man. Uh... Be, so... We have, I, we have a minute save and us, a half Maggie. left. I have nothing... No... You're arguing, Graham, you're arguing against Camus. AJ is I'm not, putting forward a, a reinterpretation of it that like includes, he's finding the overlap between Christianity and existentialism, correct? That we, because we know our eternal end, we can find freedom of movement, especially on an eternal perspective. So can I write, should I write a, an artistic novel or not? He has to prove that it's a worthwhile end 
because everything is meaningless. I know that everything for me is eternal. And whether or not I write this book, it only matters insofar as it touches my eternal soul or the eternal soul of others. Other than that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm famous. It doesn't matter if it brings me a hundred bucks. It doesn't matter. Like I don't need to impress anybody. My, my world is eternal. Right. And so there I'm pointing out that the Christian ethic brings some of the same freedom within limits, the same feeling of freedom, not the same freedom to do anything. I think that's where our wires were crossed. Right. I don't find the freedom to murder thousands. The right. same feeling of freedom. The same feeling of freedom in knowing that the eternal is before me. For, for Camus, it was an eternal void that gave him that feeling of freedom. For me, it is eterni- eternity itself that gives that feeling of freedom. So you have a feeling of freedom. Let's say God comes down and picks you up and pulls you to, towards him in heaven. And in your heart, you have that feeling of flying. The man who falls off a cliff has that same feeling for the first instant. Oh, well expressed. Oh, cool. Excellent. Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. We're agreeing. I, okay. I, like, yeah. I, I think that all I'm trying to say is that there, there is a, if, if we truly wed ourselves to an eternal perspective, there are things that, that we can freely do without anxiety because it's eternal and they'll be swallowed up in eternity. Um, that, that does not extend to things that touch the eternal soul. So there is, there are things that are forbidden. And that's what I think you are trying to say, right? There's nothing forbidden to Camus. There are things forbidden to us because eternity is a real also thing. because of the eternity. It matters. Right. Yeah, exactly. But the stuff that matters is eternal, mm. right? The stuff that doesn't matter is the non-eternal. Gotcha. Right? Yep. You, you with me? I'm that's with what you. I'm saying. Well, I think we're agreeing. Yeah. Okay. okay. Whew. Did you... I did I? Are you the intro? I no. did. Okay. So, um, that was good. Uh, if you have... You probably have thoughts. If you have thoughts or <laughs> figured it out, email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. Is that the correct email? Yes. Um, you can tweet us at classicalstuff.net if you can uh, condense your thought into, no, classicalstuff.twitter or whatever it is. Yep, nailed it. Yep. Um, <laughs> if you can condense your thoughts to 140 characters, um, you can patronize us on Patreon. And there are things there that uh, added okay. things like extra episodes. I'm sure we'll keep talking about this when this episode is done. Yep. You can shoot us an AMA and ask us questions That's about right. this episode. We will ask quite, we will answer any question asked uh, every month. Um, question. Yes. And, um, and that's it. Um, so thanks for listening. And this is Graham, AJ and what well, was, uh, what's your name? Oh, Tommy Fletch. Uh, yes. Tommy, Tommy Fletch. Gold, Tommy Fletch. Yep. Uh, signing off. Bye. Bye. Cheers.